Good evening, everyone. We are continuing our series in Mark's Gospel this evening, as Paul has said already. So as we study the next few chapters over the next few weeks, grab a Bible with me. If you're handed one on the way in, you'll find Mark chapter 15 on page 852. That's where we are this evening, Mark chapter 15. I'll pray for us as we open God's word and then I'll read the first 20 verses for us. Father, we pray that as we study your word, you would show us the living word, Jesus. And would we bow the knee to him this evening as the son of God, as our king and as our Messiah. And please, Father, help us to do so with willing and thankful hearts. In his name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 15 then, please read along with me. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, He, that's Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he had perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed 
and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Well, the year is 2016, and I'm sat on a sofa in Edinburgh, watching on in utter horror at what is unfolding on my television screen. The show that I'm watching is Making a Murderer, and I am absolutely aghast as I watch the true story of a man named Stephen Avery condemned in a court of law, despite all of the evidence suggesting that he was innocent. My jaw drops as a number of different authorities and groups conspire to find Avery guilty of a crime that he didn't commit. Evidence is planted, conveniently placed at the right location at the right time. All doubts are dismissed, and anyone that could have intervened doesn't want to know. Rewind another 2,000 years to Mark's Gospel, and we read this evening in these verses of another making, not of a murderer, but perhaps making a blasphemer, making an insurrectionist. We read these verses perhaps with a degree of shock, perhaps with a degree of horror, as we watch a number of different authorities and groups conspire to find Jesus guilty of crimes that he simply did not commit. We witness the collective collaboration, verse one, of the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the whole council as they arrest Jesus and deliver him to Pilate. We hear the cries of the crowd, verse eight, calling for the crucifixion of the man who claims to be the king of the Jews. We hear the sneers of the soldiers, verse 17 onwards, as Pilate delivers Jesus over to them to be crucified. He, of course, being a man who could have intervened, Pilate, but he doesn't want to know. They make for strange allies in the eyes of the world, forces that would have traditionally had much to divide them, and yet now united in their opposition to the Messiah, King of God's people, a group that will happily set aside their differences in order to see Jesus' death. It's a noisy, chaotic scene, and yet amidst all of the clamor, amidst all of the accusations, amidst the corrupt courtrooms, Jesus says a mere four words in our English translations. It's in response to Pilate's question in verse two, where Jesus is asked, are you the king of the Jews? And he simply says, you have said so. The only thing that could have made my experience of watching Making a Murderer even stranger would have been if the accused man, Stephen Avery, had watched on as all of the authorities team up to find him guilty, looked on all the planted evidence, listened in to all the doubts being dismissed, witnessed the indefensible verdict, and yet sat there saying absolutely nothing to defend himself. And yet that is exactly what Jesus does here in Mark chapter 15. Pilate is amazed, we read in verse 5. Amazed that Jesus has no further answers to the claims that are made. Have you no answer to make, Jesus? But what Mark would have us understand this evening is amidst the malice of the authorities, in Jesus' silence, 
the veil that still partially obscures God's salvation plan for his people is lifting higher and higher for us to see it with our own eyes as onlookers. See, Jesus here willingly, silently endures the scorn of the authorities, both to fulfill scripture and to enact God's plan to save and rescue his people. Three things for us to consider this evening. They're on the screen to my left. You'll have them on the little sheets that you were given as you came in in your Bibles. The first one, verses one to five of chapter 15, is Jesus, the son of man, delivered and condemned as predicted. Jesus, the son of man, delivered and condemned as predicted. I've very deliberately gone with the son of man here in the title of the first heading, even though that title is not explicitly used in Mark chapter 15 in the verses that we're looking at. And the reason why I've gone with it is because in Mark's gospel, Jesus has predicted this exact sequence of events three times. The first is in Mark chapter 8, long before Jesus is in Jerusalem, where Jesus teaches his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. The second is in chapter 9, where Jesus teaches his disciples again that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. The third prediction of all of these unfolding events is in chapter 10, where Jesus says to his followers again, adding a little bit more detail each time, that the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And those three predictions stand on the 700-year prediction of the death of the servant of the Lord that we read in Isaiah chapter 53. One of many Old Testament passages that foreshadow or foretell the arrival, the suffering of Jesus in detail. See, here in Mark 15 is the Son of Man, oppressed and afflicted by the religious authorities, the Roman authorities, yet he does not open his mouth. Led like a lamb to the slaughter, led like a sheep before his shearers, silently, not opening his mouth. There is something jarring here, I think, in Mark 15. When we watch the Son of Man, he who stands before all things, existed before all things, he who stands outside of time, he who sits on a throne far and high above all earthly rulers, willingly at the mercy of the rulers of this world. There is something uncomfortable, I think, as we watch the creator, the sustainer of all things, the one in whom all things hold together, facing lies, hatred, his own earthly death as a human. And yet, as jarring and as uncomfortable these words are, Mark would never want us to think that these incidents in chapter 15 were some sort of terrible accident, terrible defeat, where the forces who oppose Jesus finally win a significant victory. All of this fulfills everything that was promised by God, a timely and crucial demonstration to those of us who watch on that his authority over this situation 
over everything that's happening to Jesus is unquestionably strong. In God's salvation plan for his people, even in the darkest moments where the Savior seems defeated, where it looks like all is lost, where it looks like God will finally be muted, Mark wants us to see that God's power is never taken from him, never seized from him. There is no moment where he is outmuscled, outgunned, no moment where he is caught off guard. God does not make the best of a dire situation that he unknowingly, unwittingly stumbles into. The disciples who record all of this for us don't need to spin the events or rewrite the narrative to make Jesus' death mean something. No. Instead, our discomfort of what we see remains there, but leads us to a steady hope in God's plan to rescue his people as the Son of Man is delivered and condemned, exactly like Jesus said would happen. It's why Jesus remains silent in these verses. He willingly says nothing so that the next phase, the ultimate phase of our rescue, can begin. Even so, he remains utterly sovereign, utterly authoritative, throughout every single interaction even when it seems like the forces that oppose him finally have the upper hand. They never have. They never will. So that's the first thing for us to see this evening. Jesus, the Son of Man, delivered and condemned as predicted, yet he remains completely authoritatively in control of everything that's happening. The second thing for us to consider is Jesus, the King of the Jews, who endures the scorn of the people. We'll jump ahead to verses 16 to 20 as we look at this together. It's been another week in the news where we have learned a lot about the character of various national leaders as we witness them speak and interact with each other on the world stage. We've seen quotations from press conferences, military action, inaction, all of which reveals a lot about the leader, reveals a lot about the leadership that rules in a particular country or state. Now imagine we were reacting to the live feed of verses 16 through to 20 as it appeared on our screens. What kind of leader would we understand Jesus to be by what he does and doesn't do? How will he react when he stares down the mockery, the brutality of his own death at the hands of the Roman soldiers? Verse 16, an entire battalion gathers together to clothe Jesus in a purple cloak, crowning him with a crown of thorns and with absolutely no sincerity whatsoever, no desire to worship him. They salute him and shout with glee, verse 18, Hail, King of the Jews. Again, as we read these verses, it's a deeply uneasy, it's a harrowing description of Jesus at the hands of the Gentile authorities. Yet one where, in so many ways, we see Jesus' character and convictions as our leader. We see Jesus' character, we see Jesus' convictions so clearly as the King of the Jews. The irony of the shouts of the soldiers is that in so many ways, this is where we see the king of the Jews at his most kingly. 
His very mission has driven him here to this moment where he will willingly step into the scorn and the suffering and mockery for a purpose, our salvation. Many an earthly leader throughout history would rule and exercise authority by mocking others, by subjecting others to death. That would have certainly been the case 2,000 years ago for the ruling Roman Empire. Many an earthly leader in our day and age would rule and exercise authority by clinging on to power, by clinging on to credibility in whatever capacity they can, by saving face whatever the cost, even at the expense of those that they love the most. And yet Jesus' rule, Jesus' reign as king of his people, is one where he is willing to be mistreated, one where he is willing to be mocked, shamed by the very ones that he came to save, both Jew and Gentile. Jesus would exercise his authority, show us all what kind of leader he is, show us what kind of kingdom he rules by subjecting himself to his own death as a human for the sake of the salvation of others. He is a king so committed to the salvation of souls that he would willingly endure the physical, emotional, spiritual agony of one of the worst forms of scorn and torture imaginable. Why? For the glory that lay before him so that he may be rightly worshipped and adored by millions throughout history, and so that you and I, as we sit here this evening, as we are rescued by him from our sins, might share in that glory with him forever. I suspect that sometimes our king, Jesus, feels like a distant king, or perhaps we feel like God rescues us begrudgingly, Perhaps the forgiveness that he offers for our sins at times seems a little bit transactional, feels a little bit impersonal. And yet if Jesus was willing to endure to this extent, we should, we must completely trust him as a king who is deeply committed to our salvation, deeply committed to our rescue, who loves us this much, who is committed to the end for we will all see him one day face to face. A day coming when we will all, Roman soldier, religious authority, we who sit here this evening, kneel down, this time in genuine homage to the king and his reign. Which leads us on to the third and final thing for us to look at this evening as we draw to a close. The Messiah, Jesus, the one who sets the guilty captives free. In verses uh, 6 to 15, the bit that we haven't yet covered in Mark chapter 15, we meet Barabbas. Barabbas is an especially terrifying sort of human being. We learn in verse 7 that he's part of a group of rebels who had committed murder in the insurrection. He'd started a coup against the rulers of the city of Jerusalem, probably against the very Pilate that has thrown him in jail. Unlike Stephen Avery, here is somebody who has actually committed murder. This is not somebody who Pilate would want loose around the streets of Jerusalem again, and yet Pilate is so crippled by the voices of the crowd chanting for Barabbas in verse 11 that the increasingly frail-looking Pilate 
the increasingly weak-looking leader releases Barabbas to satisfy their desires. And again, as, we, as we've seen throughout these verses in Mark, it's yet another scene where we're supposed to feel, I think, a sense of unease and uncertainty and discomfort and perhaps even confusion. It's terrible leadership on Pilate's part as he acquiesces completely to the mob rule of a crowd, releasing a man who has a proven track record of not wanting Pilate to govern Jerusalem. Only for Jesus the one who has silently endured everything that we have seen so far, to be the one who takes his place. See, Mark draws our attention, just like Isaiah did in his prophecy. Mark draws our attention to Jesus' innocence. Let me just point out two moments where he does that. In verse 10, Pilate perceives correctly that it is out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up, rather than Jesus actually being guilty of any crime. And then again in verse 14, Pilate says to the crowds, perhaps the best question that is asked in this section, what evil has Jesus done? Knowing again that Jesus is innocent of any crime. But yet again, as we've seen throughout this entire section, God's salvation plan is slowly developing like a Polaroid as we watch on. Barabbas, the guilty one, Someone who belongs in a maximum security prison for a long, long time. He goes free. Jesus, the Messiah King, takes his place in order that the guilty Barabbas might go free. Jesus is falsely accused by the religious leaders of stirring up the people against Pilate. He is condemned to death. Whereas Barabbas, who has actually done that, is not punished, but is instead released to walk away free. It's as if Barabbas's charges are transferred across onto Christ. See, the exchange that takes place here is a physical demonstration of what is taking place spiritually in the verses to come, verses that we'll look at next week. Barabbas is fully culpable for his actions, completely guilty of his crimes, correctly condemned for his actions. But Jesus is the one who goes in the place of the guilty. It is the only way that Barabbas could ever go free. Barabbas is in no position to bargain with the authorities. He cannot earn his release. He cannot contribute towards it. He does not deserve it. And the truth is, none of us do. We all stand condemned and guilty before our king. Nobody is in a position to negotiate with Jesus when it comes to our own insurrection against him. None of us can negotiate with him. None of us are in a position to reason with him or to bargain with him. None of us are in a position where we contribute towards our release when it comes to our own sin and sinfulness. And so all we can do, like Barabbas did, I imagine, is to watch with awe and amazement as the cell door swings open and we're told that we can go. All we can do is respond with gratitude, love, and devotion as Jesus takes our place 
to rescue us from the eternal death, the judgment that we deserve. Everything that we are charged with, the insurrection against Jesus, the way in which we have constantly, time and time again, turned away from him, rejected his laws, rejected his love, everything that makes us guilty before God is transferred onto him as he goes to the cross. And so if you are a Christian here this evening, know that the jail door is open. Push it. Know your full salvation. Know no guilt. Know no condemnation. Enjoy the freedom that you have from sin and judgment that comes with Christ, your Messiah, your Savior King, standing in your place. You are righteous before God because of what Jesus has done. Jesus, the innocent one, has been numbered amongst the transgressors, meaning that like Barabbas, we do not need to be. We walk free. And so in response, flood your thoughts with thankfulness for who Jesus is, for what he has done for you, for me, for the scorn he has endured, for his innocence before the authorities, for his silence so that he might save us, so that he might set the guilty captives free. Mark shows us that it was the plan formed by God long before the foundations of the earth ever were. A plan that was foretold hundreds of years before Jesus arrived. And as those that God loves deeply, as we witness the love that Jesus shows for his people, as we look at a God who is deeply committed to saving us for his glory, we, as we sit here this evening, as those who love Jesus, as those who follow him, we are released. We are released from sin. We are released from judgment to be with Jesus, to be with his people forever. He is so good to us and so kind and we are so forgiven. Let me pray for us as we draw to a close. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that he endured so much on our behalf. We thank you, Father, for the control, for the authority that we read of in these verses. Thank you, Father, that we can know with certainty that you love us through Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we can go back to these verses time and time again and be reminded of these wonderful truths, that Jesus has taken our place, that he has set the guilty captives free, that we need no longer fear our sin and the judgment we deserve.
Thank you, Jesus, for taking our place. We love you, we praise you, and we want to live a life in obedience to you. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would empower us to do that for your glory, for our salvation. In your name we pray and ask. Amen. Well, the appropriate thing for us to do in response to all of these uh, wonderful things that we've looked at this evening is to glory.